Game of Thrones is the television drama adapted from George R. R. Martin's book series, A Song of Ice and Fire. It is one of the biggest televisual global phenomenons of all time. Eight seasons long, it was a sweeping, majestic and awe-inspiring story that rewrote the rules of what could be achieved on the small screen. Beloved across the world, its eighth and very divisive final series ended in 2019, but what some people may not be aware of is that most of the storyline, the characters and the locations all took direct inspiration from real-life history. So what were these inspirations behind the story? Who were the real-life counterparts behind many of Game of Thrones' most iconic characters? Well, I'll be answering all of those questions and more in this week's episode. And although this is not a discussion of the plot of Game of Thrones itself, please be prepared for spoilers throughout. So if you haven't seen the whole series yet, and if you haven't, what on earth have you been doing, then turn back now. Welcome back to the Tudor Chest, the podcast, episode 6, Game of Thrones, the history behind the hit. With dragons, zombies and witchcraft, Game of Thrones undoubtedly falls into the category of fantasy. But that is only a small part of what I believe drew in such enormous audiences. Game of Thrones ripped up the rulebook. This was a show which took knee-jerk twists and turns at such a pace that there were times when you were left simply dumbfounded by the bravery of the storytelling. From Ned Stark's beheading at the end of season one, to Daenerys Targaryen's descent into madness in the season eight finale, this show kept us on our toes in a way that no other show has ever done. But what isn't so well known, or perhaps obvious, is that Game of Thrones is an amalgamation of many facets of our past, in particular English medieval history. George R. R. Martin, the author of the Song of Ice and Fire books from which the television series is based, has gone on record in saying that The Wars of the Roses is the foundation for much of the early plot, and therefore many of the characters he created are also elaborate versions of some of history's most iconic figures. At this point, I think it's prudent to provide a bit of information about the overall plot of Game of Thrones, because it's possible that some listeners of the podcast may have not seen any of Game of Thrones or read the books, and so I will briefly, which is an almost impossible task, summarise the central elements of the story. Game of Thrones is set in an entirely made-up world, although much of the way that it looks greatly resembles early medieval Europe, ancient Rome, or areas of Asia during the Mongol Empire. The majority of the story takes place in the continent of Westeros. Westeros is broken into seven kingdoms, with a king or queen of the whole of Westeros, and then noble houses who are loyal to the king or queen, governing the different kingdoms in their name. These houses have their own alliances and vary in wealth and power. They also have different accents, which somewhat mirror the United Kingdom and parts of Europe. For example, the North in Game of Thrones is colder and the inhabitants of the North speak with Northern English accents, whereas those in the South 
which is warmer and home to the capital city of King's Landing, speak with southern English accents. That is, with the exception of Sadavos, who is apparently the only Geordie in Game of Thrones. Still confused about that. Those furthest south, who occupy an area called Dawn, which is quite desert-like, speak with a Spanish accent. Religious beliefs are also different in region to region. The very far north leads to an area called the Wall, a 700-foot-high wall of ice which protects the Seven Kingdoms from an evil force that lives north of it. This evil force are known as the White Walkers, zombie-like creatures intent on destroying the human race. Unfortunately, the vast majority of the inhabitants of Westeros, particularly those in the south, believe the White Walkers to be pure myth. At the start of the story, the royal house is the Baratheons. The Baratheons took the throne by waging war against the previous ruling dynasty, the Targaryens. The remaining members of the Targaryen dynasty now live in exile on the other continent that we see in the series, Essos. The Targaryen family have an unusual affinity for taming dragons, and some are immune to heat and fire. However, the family also carries a streak of madness in their veins, owing to a frequent habit of inbreeding. What follows is an eight-series-long struggle between the many houses of Westeros, all fighting for position and status, achieved through marriage, murder and betrayal, sometimes all in one episode. The Starks are the ruling family of the North, easily the largest region of Westeros, and are from the outset the family that we're encouraged to support. But broadly speaking, the Starks are decent, unambitious people who want to be left alone, whereas other families, such as the Lannisters or the Tyrells, are significantly more ambitious and at times cruel. So what are the inspirations for the series? Who are the historical figures who've been moulded into some of the most iconic characters ever depicted on screen? As I've said, The Wars of the Roses is undoubtedly a key inspiration behind the story, which acts as the central narrative for the first season, a battle between the Starks and the Lannisters. The Lannisters are the most wealthy house in Westeros, and are also the power behind the throne. At the start of the series, King Robert Baratheon is married to Cersei Lannister, daughter of the realm's most powerful noble, Lord Tywin Lannister. Unbeknownst to King Robert, however, although openly gossiped about, is the fact that Queen Cersei has a long-standing incestuous relationship with her twin brother, Jamie, and the three children being raised as Roberts are in fact her brothers. When Eddard Stark, known as Ned Stark, head of House Stark, and Robert's oldest friend, discovers this fact, he attempts to lead a coup d'etat against Cersei, which fails spectacularly resulting in Ned's shocking execution at the end of the first season. Any of this sounding familiar? Well, the early stages of the Wars of the Roses was driven by Richard, Duke of York, and his attempts to unseat King Henry VI and his French queen, Margaret of Anjou. Richard had as good a claim to the English throne as the king, and given Henry VI's feckless ineptitude, Richard attempted to steal the crown by force. But whilst the king may have been weak and feeble, his wife, the notorious Margaret of Anjou, certainly was not. Margaret of Anjou successfully rooted out the rebellion, and before long, Richard of York was dead. 
His head was stuck on a pike, wearing a paper crown to mock his pretender claims, and displayed at Micklegate Bar in York. Cause of the Yorkists, however, did not die with Richard, and soon his eldest son, Edward Earl of March, would successfully displace Lancastrian rule, becoming King Edward IV. If we then jump back into Game of Thrones, King Robert is killed by a hunting accident. Cersei has successfully quashed Ned Stark's attempted rebellion, and her deranged teenage son Joffrey, the product of incest, is placed on the throne. Ned Stark's eldest son, Rob Stark, names himself King in the North, and starts a war against Joffrey in the name of his deceased father. The parallels to the storyline of the Wars of the Roses are obvious. But on to the characters themselves, and let's start big, and look at the inspiration behind that most famous of kings, Henry VIII. As I explained at the start of Game of Thrones, the King of the Seven Kingdoms is Robert Baratheon. Robert Baratheon snatched a throne through conquest, and upon accession was greeted with warm enthusiasm from his people who believed that a new dawn had begun following years of uncertainty at the hands of the mad Targaryen king, Ares II. Sadly, once he actually captured the throne, Robert soon realises that he cares little for actual rule. What started out as great promise soon turns into bitterness and division. He is overweight, lazy and lecherous. He is more interested in sport and hunting, in bedding women, than he is in attending council meetings. He is also very trigger-happy when it comes to waging war. He is also blithely unaware of the fact that the three children being raised as his own are in fact the byproduct of an incestuous relationship between his wife and her twin brother. Putting aside the obvious physical similarities, the comparisons between Henry VIII and Robert Baratheon are abundant. Henry's own accession was greeted with great excitement by his people. He was everything a Renaissance prince should be, erudite, charming, loyal and generous, but years of bitter disappointment in both the marriage bed and ever-increasing paranoia turned him into the more infamous monster that we associate with his name to this day. Henry's love of hunting was cut short when he suffered an injury in 1536. Thereafter, he gained huge amounts of weight, and it was said that his personality also changed markedly. The end to Henry's Game of Thrones counterpart is therefore all the more fitting, for King Robert dies through injuries sustained whilst hunting wild boar. And so, on to the king who followed Robert, the psychotic nightmare that was Joffrey Baratheon. There are a couple of people that many believe Joffrey Baratheon is based on, including King Richard II, but more parallels are seen in the bloodthirsty Prince Edward of Lancaster. Although never proven, there is some belief that Prince Edward was not the true-born son of King Henry VI, but was in fact the product of an affair between Margaret of Anjou and Edward Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. The parallels of Joffrey are therefore immediate in this point alone. The young prince was known for being a distinctly unpleasant character, with one chronicler stating, This boy, only 13 years of age, already talks of nothing but cutting off heads or making war. Anyone who has seen Game of Thrones can confidently say that Joffrey is very much in the same mould. That Prince Edward may have not been King Henry VI's true-born son was never doubted by the king himself just as Robert Baratheon never questioned Joffrey and his other children's legitimacy. 
In marriage alliances, the correlations between Edward and Joffrey become clearer still. At 17, Prince Edward was married to Anne Neville, younger daughter of the kingmaker Richard Earl of Warwick, who had become disillusioned with the Yorkist king Edward IV and conspired with Margaret of Anjou to put her son on the throne. In the world of Game of Thrones, Joffrey is first engaged to Sansa Stark, the eldest daughter of Ned Stark. With her father a convicted traitor and her brother in open rebellion against the king, this intended marriage is broken up and it is decided that Joffrey will instead marry Marjorie, daughter of Mace Tyrell, the second most powerful and richest family in Westeros. Unlike Sansa, Marjorie is a force to be reckoned with in her own right and possesses the skills to tame Joffrey wonderfully. Prince Edward would die at the age of just 17 on the battlefield in his mother's last-ditch attempt to overthrow King Edward IV. In Game of Thrones, Joffrey was killed in a moment which should have been a time of great rejoicing, his marriage to Marjorie Tyrell, but he is poisoned discreetly by Marjorie's own acerbic and spectacularly shady grandmother, Lady Olena Tyrell, played by the late, great Dame Diana Rigg. It feels only prudent to move from the inspiration of Joffrey into the inspiration for his mother, Cersei Lannister, who satisfyingly is said to be based on Margaret of Anjou, mother of Prince Edward of Lancaster. I've already covered the rumours of infidelity, but the connections between these two women runs further still. Both Margaret of Anjou and Cersei Lannister are commanding, demanding, indomitable, and fiercely devoted to their children, despite their children possessing very obvious flaws. Like Cersei Lannister, Margaret of Anjou's marriage to King Henry VI was arranged with the intention of aligning the English court more closely with the Duchy of Anjou in France. Eight years into her marriage, Margaret finally conceived her only child, the aforementioned Prince Edward. Her husband's piety and mental incapacities have fueled the rumours that she cuckolded him in order to secure an heir, although no proof exists to back up this claim. As the daughter of one of the most powerful men in Europe, Margaret had a spectacular sense of her own importance and was described as being arrogant, entitled, haughty and very temperamental. She also appeared to care little for those beneath her, freely hiring Scottish mercenaries as her soldiers and paying them by providing free reign to plunder and steal whatever they wanted. In Game of Thrones, Cersei Lannister is much the same. She has no care for the poor and brutally executes a plan which kills hundreds in an explosion towards the end of season 6. Like Margaret of Anjou and her daughter-in-law Anne Neville, whom she tolerated solely because of the power that Anne's father provided to her, Cersei does not trust Marjorie Tyrell, and makes it clear to Joffrey that she believes Marjorie's actions of helping the poor are nothing more than to gain the popularity with the common people. Although she is accurate in this assessment, for it is clear that Marjorie is behaving that way for the very reason Cersei states, she also fails to recognise that people rule with the approval of the people, and that even feigned kindness is better than outright ignorance. In the end, both Margaret of Anjou and Cersei Lannister lose all of their power, influence and children thanks to a conqueror coming in and destroying all they held dear. After Edward IV successfully secured the throne of England for a second time, the ousted Henry VI died in mysterious circumstances inside the Tower of London, 
and so utterly broken and without a reason to carry on the fight, Margaret was banished back to France, dying in poverty as an extended member of the French king's family. In Game of Thrones, during the penultimate episode of the entire series, Cersei finds herself powerless, friendless and childless, cradling the one person who never truly abandoned her, her brother Jaime, and in the depths of the Red Keep, the Game of Thrones equivalent of Buckingham Palace, she dies by being crushed to death as Daenerys Targaryen destroys much of the city atop her last remaining dragon, Drogon. This leads me nicely into Daenerys Targaryen and the inspiration behind her story. Unlike other people in the Game of Thrones landscape, George R. R. Martin appears to have borrowed from various people when building out the story of his dragon-riding queen. But what is clear is a correlation between her and not a woman, but a man, King Henry VII. Henry VII was the obscure Welshman with no real claim to the throne of England who managed to defeat King Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth and in so doing end the 331-year rule of the House of Plantagenet and set up perhaps English history's most infamous dynasty, the Tudors. Henry Tudor had been in exile for over 20 years and in order to win the crown, he crossed the English Channel and brought an army of foreigners with him to the gates of his long-lost homeland. Sound familiar? In Game of Thrones, Daenerys Targaryen is the youngest daughter of King Aerys II, known as the Mad King. Preceding the story, her father is murdered by Jaime Lannister, forcing Daenerys and her elder brother Viserys to flee across the narrow sea to Essos. Daenerys starts out as a meek and kind young girl, bullied by her brother and effectively sold off in marriage to Khal Drogo, the leader of a colossal race of nomadic horse-mounted warriors called the Dothraki. Her marriage to Khal Drogo is a means of providing Viserys with an army to displace King Robert and retake Westeros. King Henry VII was born Henry Tudor to Edmund Tudor and Lady Margaret Beaufort. Like the orphaned Daenerys, Henry never knew his father because he died three months before the child's birth in the earlier parts of the Wars of the Roses. Henry's claim to the throne was dubious at best. It came via his mother, who was the great-granddaughter of John of Gaunt, a son of King Edward III, and his wife, a long-time mistress, Catherine Swinford. During Daenerys and Khal Drogo's wedding, she is presented with three fossilised dragon eggs. It also becomes clear that Daenerys is one of those Targaryens who is immune to fire. Her brother Viserys, who is both vile and cruel, is soon undone and is killed by Daenerys' own husband, Khal Drogo, halfway through season one, by having molten gold poured over his head. What a way to go. By the end of the first season, Khal Drogo is also dead. Daenerys walks directly into the middle of his funeral pyre, but instead of burning to death, comes out of it completely unscathed, and furthermore, is joined by three baby dragons, born from the fossilised eggs that she took with her into the fire. She names these dragons Drogon, after Khal Drogo, and then Rhaegal and Viserion for her two deceased brothers. From here, Daenerys' story moves on to one of more considerable power, as she slowly but surely builds up an army with the intention of doing what her brother failed to achieve, taking back the Seven Kingdoms. This does not happen overnight though. In fact, Daenerys' storyline remains almost completely independent from the activities taking place in Westeros, 
and it isn't until the very final episode of season 6 that she finally sets sail from Essos. Similarly, in medieval England, Henry Tudor had attempted several failed crossings from France into England, which greatly prolonged his absence. Things finally came to a head in 1485, when much to the outrage from both his people and those overseas, Richard III had placed himself on the throne of England, and in so doing, denied the throne from his nephews, known to history as the Princes in the Tower. Whether Richard personally ordered the Prince's murder has never been proven. He certainly had the motives and the means, but so did Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry Tudor, who had been plotting his return and accession to the crown for over 20 years. Henry landed in England with an army made up of Scottish and French soldiers, as well as the supporters his mother had secured. He overthrew Richard and became King Henry VII. Henry would rule for over 23 years, and whilst the country certainly moved into an era of peace, Henry himself became a somewhat unpleasant character. He was notorious for his parsimony, amassing a huge fortune but providing very little back to his people, many of whom were starving. It wouldn't be fair to say that he became a full-blown tyrant, but he was certainly a man with little to no pleasing characteristics. Similarly, the story of Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones is perhaps the series' most explosive character arc. Unlike Henry VII, by the finale of season 8, Daenerys has absolutely turned into a full-blown monster. She is cruel and unhinged. She finally overthrows Cersei Lannister, but at a terrible cost. Atop her last remaining dragon, the huge black beast Drogon, she practically decimates the whole of King's Landing, the fictional capital city of Westeros, killing thousands and thousands of innocent people. It is true that her character suffers considerable blows throughout her short life, most notably the deaths of her other two dragons, as well as the horrible realisation that her lover is not only her nephew, but that he has a better claim to the throne of Westeros than she does. It becomes clear that Daenerys' whole existence has, in effect, been a lie. Her character arc, and the way she goes from being a kind character into an unhinged tyrant, is perhaps the biggest problem that a lot of people had with the final season of Game of Thrones. The complaints were that it was rushed and greatly undercut years of character development. I didn't personally have much of an issue with it. If anything, I thought it was well made and made sense, although I will accept that the series did feel rushed at times. In the end, Daenerys is assassinated by her nephew, Jon Snow, in the very final episode of the whole series. And as I watched her body being carried off into the distance by Drogon, it did feel really sad. A character that we'd all invested so much time in, who ends up reigning as Queen of Westeros for just one day. The next character I wanted to look into is perhaps the series most well-loved, Tyrion Lannister, the as-yet unmentioned third Lannister sibling as the younger brother to Cersei and Jaime. Tyrion is a dwarf, with stubby legs and mismatched eyes of green and black. In the books, he is disfigured further when the majority of his nose is sliced off in the Battle of Blackwater that we see at the end of Season 2 of the television series. What Tyrion lacks in the way of height, he more than makes up for in both intellect and wit. Unlike his sister, and to a lesser degree brother, Tyrion is an incredibly kind and caring man. He receives little to no respect from practically everyone in the series, and is regularly mocked for his short stature, 
often called the imp or half-man. The exception to this is his brother Jamie, with whom he has a very strong bond. It is actually one of the few most natural and loving relationships in Game of Thrones. Tyrion's birth causes the death of his mother, and his father Tywin makes no secret that he loathes Tyrion for this reason. Many of Tyrion's troubles come from the unfair persecution that he receives by being a dwarf, although this is somewhat mitigated by his rank as brother to the Queen and son of Westeros's most wealthy noble. But who is this universally adored character based on? Well, unsurprisingly, one doesn't have to look very far to spot the correlations between Tyrion and Richard III. Richard was born into the wealthy and influential House of York, who, as I have already outlined, would through waging war overthrow the House of Lancaster and become England's royal family. Born with severe scoliosis of the spine, a point which was actually dismissed until proven when his remains were discovered in 2012, this would have given him a severe hunchback and possibly a lame left arm. He cut a distinctly unappealing figure when compared to his hunky older brother, Edward IV. Like Tyrion, Richard's senior rank in England did provide some relief from the drawbacks that he was born with, and it soon became clear that he benefited from superior intellect, which made him a useful military strategist. Once King Edward IV became gravely ill, Richard manoeuvred himself into a politically advantageous marriage with Anne Neville, the same woman who had at one time been married to Prince Edward of Lancaster, and was soon named as Governor of England during the minority reign of King Edward V. Not long after, however, Edward V and his younger brother, the Duke of York, disappeared in the Tower of London, and before you know it, Richard was proclaimed king. Both Richard and Tyrion are born at absolute height of social standing, but carry significant physical abnormalities that impact their relationships and create an aura of distrust and outward dislike amongst most people. Both make up for their lack of physical ability by being able to strategize. In the series, Tyrion marries Sansa Stark, meaning that both he and Richard III marry women who are high-born are descendants of rebel houses. Like Richard III, Tyrion's young nephew Joffrey is named king, with Tyrion acting as one of his premier, albeit despised, advisers. Joffrey and Edward V are both murdered, and both Tyrion and Richard are blamed for these respective murders. Of course, in Game of Thrones, we know that Tyrion is wholly innocent, whereas, as I have already mentioned, Richard certainly had the motive for bumping off his young nephews. Unlike Richard, who was cruelly slain at the Battle of Bosworth, Tyrion is one of the few Game of Thrones characters who has a happy ending, surviving all of the bloodshed and being named Hand of the King, the Game of Thrones equivalent of a chief minister, to the elected ruler at the end of the series, King Bran the Broken. And so from Tyrion, I will now move on to his one-time wife, Sansa Stark, the elder daughter of Ned Stark, who begins the series as a vapid and foolish teenager but ends it as a queen. It is believed that Sansa is loosely based on Elizabeth of York, Henry VIII's mother and wife of Henry VII. Elizabeth of York grew up a princess and would have expected to one day become a queen, probably to an overseas king. Elizabeth was taught the skills and behaviours befitting someone of her rank at the time, skills such as obedience, grace, femininity, essentially anything deemed goodly in the eyes of her contemporaries. As a child, she was promised in marriage to Charles, the Dauphin of France, 
This union was soon broken off by the French king when Elizabeth was a teenager. Despite her royal rank, Elizabeth's childhood was turbulent to say the least, with happy times of staggering grandeur to periods of awful uncertainty and danger. When her father, Edward IV, unexpectedly died, Elizabeth's life grew more dangerous still. Her uncle Richard became king, and soon her two brothers were placed in the Tower of London, and she would never see them again. In Game of Thrones, Sansa Stark is brought up to be very much the ideal noble young woman. She excels in needlework, in making home, and has her sights set firmly on becoming queen to her knight in shining armour, Prince Joffrey. She soon realises, however, that Joffrey is a psychotic monster and her rose-tinted view on royal life begins to disappear. Like Elizabeth of York, Sansa's two younger brothers vanish following a war between her own house and that of the royal court, and in greater parallel still, she is then offered up in marriage to Tyrion Lannister, the man who, as I've just covered, many believe to be drawn from Richard III. With Elizabeth of York, despite being Richard's niece, she was once viewed as a serious contender for his own marriage. Even Elizabeth and Sansa's physicalities are similar. They are tall, willowy, and with long flowing red hair. The key connection between Elizabeth and Sansa, however, is in how much their stories start out from an almost fairy tale like point of view, but once politics enters the equation, toughen both women up, and they become key players in their own right. Like Tyrion, Sansa is one of the few characters who gets a truly happy ending, when in the very final episode of the entire series, she is named Queen of the North, with the northern region of Westeros deemed independent from the rest of the kingdom. From Sansa, I am now going to move on to my favourite character of the entire series, Marjorie Tyrell, who also happens to be loosely based on my favourite figure from history, Henry VIII's most infamous of wives, Anne Boleyn. In Game of Thrones, Marjorie is the daughter of the richest lord in Westeros, Mace Tyrell, and grows up in a spectacularly glittering castle called Highgarden. Her family are extraordinarily ambitious, they are more calculating than the somewhat naive Starks, but considerably less cruel than the Lannisters. Already enormously important, the Tyrells push for greater influence through advantageous marriage with Marjorie as the much-married bride. Marjorie's first husband is Renly Baratheon, the homosexual youngest brother of King Robert Baratheon, who has a long-standing relationship with Marjorie's homosexual brother, Loris, something Marjorie is well aware of and doesn't faze her remotely. Renly briefly stakes a claim to be king himself, but when he is killed, Marjorie instead sets her sights on the true king, King Joffrey, and shortly after his death, at their wedding feast no less, secretly orchestrated by Marjorie's grandmother, Olena, she marries his younger brother, King Tommen, finally becoming Queen of the Seven Kingdoms. If we consider the story of Anne Boleyn, she was the daughter of two highly ambitious parents, one of which, her mother, was a Howard by birth, and thus Anne was born into a family of prominence, although not at the zenith of Tudor society that they would later become. The Tyrell home of Highgarden is viewed as the most beautiful in the Seven Kingdoms. Hever Castle, Anne's childhood home, is located in Kent, known as the Garden of England. Marjorie and Anne were also not their husband's first wives, or intended first wives, and share much in common personality-wise. Both are blindingly charismatic, cunning, and excel the game of court politics. Marjorie is schooled in all of this by her formidable grandmother, 
Lady Olena Tyrell. Much of Anne Boleyn's courtly skills were honed under the guidance of an equally powerful matriarch, Claude of France. Anne Boleyn famously refused to become King Henry VIII's mistress, and this is reflected in Marjorie's own story as well. She was due to become a mistress to King Robert, but holds him off, hoping for greater power at a later stage. Indeed, she says in a conversation with the slippery Lord Peter Baelish, I don't want to be a queen, I want to be the queen. Marjorie is also extremely close to her brother Loris and has a tolerance for his homosexuality, as I've already mentioned, and she also dies alongside him. It is well documented that Anne Boleyn had a very strong relationship with her brother George, who was also famously executed alongside Anne, which leads me onto the two women's fate. Marjorie's downfall comes at the hands of her despised mother-in-law, Dowager Queen Cersei Lannister, who accuses her of adultery and treason. Cersei lines up an impressive but entirely fictitious list of lovers, the first of which is Marjorie's musician, a man called the Blue Bard. Famously, one of the men accused alongside Anne Boleyn was Sir Mark Smeaton, her musician. Marjorie is finally killed in a wildfire explosion orchestrated by Cersei. As so much in Marjorie's life and her character, she is two steps ahead of everyone else in the room and recognising that something very bad is happening. She attempts to flee but is held back, dying alongside her brother, father and hundreds of others. This removes all Tyrells in the male line from the series, essentially rendering the house extinct. Anne Boleyn would be brought down on a charge of high treason, adultery and incest. And whilst the downfall of the Boleyn family was not so complete, it certainly wiped out future Boleyns in the male line from ever being prominent figures at court. Rather satisfyingly, the character of Marjorie Tyrell in the television series is played by the very same woman who enraptured audiences as Anne Boleyn in The Tudors, the wonderful Natalie Dormer. One of the best characters in Game of Thrones is undoubtedly Brienne of Tarth. The banter between her and Tormund towards the end of the series provides much of the much-needed comedy relief, resulting in Brienne being an enormous fan favourite. She is played to perfection by Gwendolyn Christie. Brienne is an object of scorn throughout most of her life, because despite being the daughter of a mid-ranking noble, and is thus technically Lady Brienne, she is, to quote her directly, no lady. Nor is she, for Brienne is first and foremost a warrior. She is six foot three in height, broad and plain. When attempting to dress as a woman, she simply looks ungainly, and when dressed for battle, she is laughed at for attempting to exist in a male-dominated space, despite the fact that she has spectacular skill in combat. She has no time for frivolity or anything remotely feminine. She is blunt, forthright and pragmatic. She is also extremely loyal to anyone who treats her with kindness or to those to whom she has deep-rooted respect. Brienne's character is driven by duty. To her, duty is the greatest honour in life, and it is clear that she would happily die in battle if it was in support of someone that she was sworn to protect. It is clear to many that the inspiration behind Brienne of Tarth is Joan of Arc. Known as the Maid of Orléans, Joan was a peasant girl from France who lived in the early 15th century. Joan believed that she heard voices from God who instructed her to lead a war against the English in the English-occupied regions of her native France. Joan became every bit the warrior, dressing in men's clothing, cutting her hair short, 
and became notorious for her abilities in battle and absolute dedication to the man that she fought for, King Charles VIII of France. Joan stood out extravagantly from all other women around her. No woman had done what she did at that time, but her conviction and abilities outweighed the unconventionality of her position as a female warrior. Brienne's storyline mirrors this, as she repeatedly defends those she cares about. Thankfully, her storyline does not end as Jones did with burning at the stake. Instead, Brienne is given a very happy conclusion to her story. She survives the series, becoming the Lady Commander of the Kingsguard, the Brand the Broken. The final two characters that I wanted to touch on often came as a pair, certainly in the earlier seasons, although their respective stories actually part ways at the end of the fourth season of Game of Thrones, these being Lord Varys and Lord Peter Baelish. The combining of these two characters' stories perhaps stems from the fact that it has been suggested that they are inspired by two of the most prominent members of Queen Elizabeth I's inner circle, Francis Walsingham and William Cecil, Lord Burley. To start with Lord Varys, nicknamed the Spider, he is known as the Master of Whisperers, the Game of Thrones equivalent of a spymaster. He employs a vast underground network of mostly children strewn across Westeros and beyond who report back gossip and information which may be useful to those he serves. The spider's web of intelligence is the reason for his sobriquet. Despite this somewhat unsavoury career, Varys is actually quite a decent character, and is mostly driven by a desire to do good by the people, and not those in power. He feigns allegiance to the Baratheon Lannister cause, but secretly remains a committed Targaryen, and is crucial to the early success of Daenerys Targaryen in building out a network of influential supporters, including houses Tyrell, Greyjoy, and Martell. When he recognises that Daenerys herself is not what he had hoped for, he switches his allegiance to the man who he believes will actually do right by the people, Jon Snow. His real-life inspiration is Francis Walsingham, spymaster extraordinaire to Elizabeth I. Walsingham had undercover intelligence in literally every corner of England and across Europe. A committed Protestant, Walsingham undoubtedly utilised his spies to be advantageous to his own political beliefs, but he was first and foremost committed to his Queen. If action was needed, even if it was grossly embellished to keep Elizabeth safe, then Walsingham was willing to stretch the truth. He became crucial to the success of Elizabeth I but also facilitated many of the things that would cause her great distress, most notably the destruction of her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. Unlike Varys, his compadre, Lord Peter Baelish, is one of the least popular characters in the entire Game of Thrones series. Baelish is manipulative in the extreme, at times creepy, and is ultimately out for no one but himself. He starts the series as the Master of Coin, the Game of Thrones equivalent of a Lord High Treasurer. This role is there to advise the monarch on financial matters and raise the money necessary to meet the crown's needs. Lord Baelish is viewed as being something of a fiscal magician by his companions on the small council, until he vacates the position and it becomes clear that he has been borrowing vast sums of money, which leaves the Iron Throne heavily in debt. Lord Baelish is born into a fairly lowly position with little to no wealth or ancestors of note. His luck changes as a child when he is taken in as a ward of House Tully, 
one of the most prominent houses in the Seven Kingdoms. As the years pass, Lord Baelish manoeuvres himself into those with power, which eventually lead to his appointment within the small council. If we look at the life of William Cecil, Lord Burley, he was also of equally base-born stock. His ascendancy to the height of Elizabeth I's inner circle came from an innate ability to think ahead and give sound advice. He was the consummate social climber. Cecil was also known for his diminutive stature. Indeed, his son was nicknamed Pygmy by the Queen. In Game of Thrones, Peter Baelish is known as Littlefinger, a somewhat condescending nickname given to him for two reasons. Firstly, his own small stature, and secondly, the lowly part of Westeros in which he grew up, an area called the Fingers. Unlike Cecil, who remained in favour to the very end of his days, Lord Baelish's many connivings are finally undone in the seventh season of the series, when he is publicly executed by Arya Stark on the orders of her sister Sansa. And so that brings me to the end of the Game of Thrones characters covered. I'm sure some listening to this will ask why I have not covered two of the most prominent characters in Game of Thrones, these being Jon Snow and Arya Stark. Whilst I'm sure that there are inspirations behind these characters of note, I've not been able to find any that satisfactorily seem plausible to me, which is why I haven't included them. Beyond its characters, both the settings within the story and some of the storylines themselves also take inspiration from our past. As I've already covered, The Wars of the Roses acts as the basis for much of the early storyline, but it is also not difficult to see the inspiration behind The Wall, a 700-foot-high wall of ice which spans the full width of Westeros in its far north. The wall was erected to keep a mythical species of the undead, known as the White Walkers, out of the Seven Kingdoms, and later serves the purpose of keeping the wildlings out as well. The wildlings are the people who live north of the wall, and deeply resent the monarch given to them by those south of it, and instead call themselves the Free Folk. George R. R. Martin has confirmed that he came up with the idea for the wall when he first visited Hadrian's Wall, a wall built by the Romans which divided England from what were deemed to be the barbarians of Scotland. Of course, Hadrian's Wall is much more modest than the Wall of Game of Thrones, at a maximum of 20 feet at its highest point. One of the most infamous episodes of Game of Thrones is The Red Wedding, which is episode 9 of the third season. The Red Wedding is often singled out as the series' greatest episode, although I would personally disagree with this. For me, the best episode of all time is Season 6's The Battle of the Bastards. In The Red Wedding, Rob Stark, his wife Talisa, and mother Lady Catelyn are celebrating a wedding between Catelyn's brother, Edmure Tully, and a daughter of Lord Walder Frey. Lady Catelyn is uneasy because the marriage was actually meant to be between Rob Stark and Lord Walder's daughter. Rob marries Talisa in secret, negating on his promise to Lord Walder with devastating consequences. Whilst it appears on the face of it that Lord Walder accepts Edmure Tully as something of a commiseration prize, he secretly plots with both the Lannisters and House Bolton. The Boltons are a barbaric house famed for their habit of flaying their enemies. They are the second most powerful northern family and therefore pledge allegiance to House Stark, which they then go against in the hopes that it will elevate them to be the most important house in the north. As the wedding ends, all those in Lord Walder's Great Hall are locked inside and an utter bloodbath ensues. 
Rob, his wife, their unborn child, and Lady Catelyn are all slaughtered. Shockingly, this scene is directly inspired by something called the Black Dinner, a notorious coup d'etat that occurred in Scotland in 1440. The then King of Scotland was a ten-year-old James II, and his advisers were unnerved by the growing prominence and power of the Douglas family. William Douglas, the sixth Earl of Douglas, who was only 16, and his younger brother David, were invited to dine with the young king. As the meal started, a black bull's head was brought into the room, a symbol of death in the Scottish court. Following a mock trial, both William and his brother, who may have been as young as 11, were beheaded on trumped-up charges of treason. Another great inspiration behind much of Game of Thrones is the Roman Empire and ancient Greece. This is most keenly felt in the continent in which much of the story doesn't take place, Essos. Essos as a whole is solely the focus of Daenerys Targaryen's story, as she spends most of the first six seasons of the series travelling around it learning the art of rule and building herself a considerable army. In addition to the architecture, customs and fashion of Essos, which feels very Roman, the most overt parallel to the Roman times is the gladiatorial fighting pits which come into the story of Game of Thrones in Season 5. In looks, the Great Pit of Dasnak, which features prominently in the ninth episode of Season 5, closely resembles the Colosseum in Rome. A huge circular amphitheatre, the Great Pit of Dasnak is a place where slaves fight to the death for the amusement of their masters, something which mirrors the activities of the Roman gladiators. The last inspiration that I wanted to mention was that of the Dothraki. The Dothraki are the horse-riding hordes of people whom Daenerys Targaryen first joins as wife of Khal Drogo, but then goes on to become the leader of in her own right. The Dothraki and their culture are an amalgamation of a few peoples, but most overtly we see parallels with Native American tribes, the Mongol Empire, and the Huns, a nomadic people who lived across Asia and parts of Eastern Europe between the 4th and 6th century AD. Attila the Hun acts as a very clear inspiration for Khal Drogo, the leader of the Dothraki and Daenerys Targaryen's husband in season 1. Game of Thrones is without question my favourite television series of all time. It is a spectacular and awe-inspiring story which literally had it all. Great drama, superb acting, incredible sets, suspense, horror, humour, heart and dragons. Its final season was very, very divisive. Although, as I've said earlier, I myself wasn't too disappointed by it. In fact, on the whole, I thought it ended well and tied up a lot of loose ends. What ultimately sets Game of Thrones apart, though, was its characters and the bravery of its storytelling. No television series ripped up the rulebook quite like GOT, and that's why so many millions across the world tuned in each week to watch the drama unfold. But so much of the story is influenced by our past adds more depth to the series and the books, making what is ultimately a fantasy feel more grounded in reality than we would initially believe. And so, that brings me to the end of this week's episode of The Tudor Chest, the podcast. Next week, I'm going to be looking at one of the most maligned women in English history, Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, and explaining why I believe we've been wrong about her all along. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. In addition to my weekly episode, I also 
put out a subscriber-only episode on a Tuesday via my Patreon account. If you would like to support The Tudor Chest and get access to this content, plus much more, please head to patreon.com forward slash The Tudor Chest. Thank you all and speak soon.